Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Phil Tiger. Slacker Greetings, Slackers. Welcome back. Welcome home to the Slacker podcast. We are back again for another season. If this is the first time that you're joining us, hello to you. Uh, My name is Phil Taggart. I um, do this Slacker podcast. I do a show on Spotify where I just play tunes called Chill the Beats. Um, I've recently moved back to Belfast. I'm six foot tall. I enjoy long walks on the beach and uh, a nice cup of tea. Is that a good enough introduction? I think it is. Um, if you are fresh, though, the show is generally an hour of me digging into an artist's career, starting with that early demo that nobody, hopefully, has ever heard before. The little early sonic sketch. Um, it gives you an idea of what those first few little furtive footsteps were like for the artist. Um, and then we take it from there. It's not like one of those grilling session interviews that you see. I, I always feel that, like, you know... You can't treat a music interview like you would you would grill a politician. Do you know, it's not an interrogation. Um, the Slacker podcast it was more of a it's an inquisitive, fairly casual chat um, that you can sort of like dip in and out of. If you have uh, sort of been part of the the last season, you will know that we absolutely rinsed it. We have um, episodes for you to go back and listen to, like Matt from Matt Berenger from the National. Bob Geldof, Action Bronson, Run the Jewels, Phoebe Bridgers, Kurt Vile, and absolutely tons of other amazing names. Last year, we went in. I think I don't think we missed a week from March 2020 until the end of January 2021. I was so close to burnout at that stage. So I was like, right, okay, need to take a little step back from the Slacker podcast just for a little bit. You know, you need you need that sort of separation to come back and enjoy it again um and during those winter months i went and i launched a, a brand new show only exclusively to listen to on spotify it is called chill the beats and it is two and a half hours off me playing the best music and as long as it's like blue lit vibey it's very very chill it's very relaxed um the music can be anything it could be 
like brand new hip hop. It could be really wafty dance music. It could be old crooners. It could be jazz. It could be new singer songwriters. Like it, like the genre genres doesn't. Like, we don't give a shit about genre on, on that show as long as it has that vibe. As long as it has that stamp of equality um, and stamp of approval, it gets on to the show. Um, so it's on Spotify for you to listen now. It's called Chill the Beats. Um, I put two shows a week up there and one show a week up on the Patreon. So I'm giving you three a week. God, I'm a content making machine at the minute. Thank you also to all of the, the Slacker Patreons who help um, support and sustain uh, this independent content. Um, if you want to support season five um, and help me make more content, then feel free to become a supporter of the show for a small monthly amount. It would literally be pocket change if pocket change actually still existed. Do you know what I mean? When was the last time you were walking about and had change rattling about in your pocket? If this is the end of money, I'm pretty happy about it. Um, go to patreon.com forward slash slacker podcast um, to donate to uh, the, the Patreon there. This week, episode one of season five, we have weird monkey stories. We have the CIA trying to recruit him. We have talks about his new reprisal album, talks about troll farms, drug addiction, amazingly received albums, poorly received albums, and a lot of really interesting stuff along the way. This was one of my favorite podcasts that of all of the seasons um, to do. This is the Slacker podcast with Moby, a really special one in three, two, one. Hey, do you know what? It was a good thing that I did leave um, the the questions that I wrote in my living room because I walked in and my dog was tearing up my um, my, <laughs> my, my cushion. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when you have a dog called Rebel. Plays to the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is you, it a big dog, little dog? What what kind of dog? Jack Russell Terrier. So like, yeah, that size, big enough, big mm-hmm. enough. Yeah, and they. And they have very idiosyncratic personalities. Like basically, because um, an ex-girlfriend of mine had a Jack Russell and it was either bored and sleeping or looking to destroy something. <laughs> that kind of sounds like me in my 20s, I think, like early 20s. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? How's things? Uh, I mean, I almost feel guilty by saying that I have nothing to complain about. That's good. I don't think there's any guilt. Um, there's any guilt in there. Yeah, just I mean, I have to say, like, and the, and maybe I should just keep this to myself because this is the opposite of sort of like uh, guilty restraint. But like Los Angeles in the winter is pretty nice to begin with. Yeah. But Los Angeles, Los Angeles during the pandemic is actually. If you're going to be in a big city during the apocalypse, LA is pretty nice. <laughs> Most of the movies that I've ever watched have always been like in uh, the apocalypse movies. I think Mars Attacks, from what I can remember, um, a lot of that happened in in, in LA. I've I've seen LA burned to the ground in many films. Yeah, which is misleading because the truth is there's no real city center. So when they when in some apocalypse movie, when LA gets destroyed, that's just playing on the fact that most cities that would be feasible. 
Whereas here, you know, I mean, LA is so massive just in terms of geographic scale that like no one's ever really going to make the effort to attack it because there's nothing to attack. I think the one thing that would uh, that would be in my my fears and anxieties if I lived in LA is that like huge tectonic plate that's kind of like running underneath it that they say I've watched too many YouTube videos I've gone down too, too many wormholes and they're mm -hmm. like when this big tectonic plate is ready to move it's ready to another earthquake the really big one is the one in the Pacific Northwest of the United States uh -huh. um actually well that one because I yeah I watched those YouTube documentaries about like how the world is potentially going to end. And really, it seems like, uh, is it, I think Yellowstone Nat National Park in the United States, like that's what's going to destroy life on Earth. <laughs> because Quiet. There, there's the world's biggest, un like unbelievably massive super volcano underneath. It's kind of just waiting to erupt and apparently it puts all other volcanoes for the last hundred million years to shame i i just have this idea of like this like you know family of climate change deniers who are like going for a lovely like um like afternoon out in, in yellowstone park and then getting caught up in it going damn it i was wrong <laughs> yeah. yeah i think there are a lot of sort of covid deniers mask deniers climate deniers and expecting them to ever admit that they're wrong is a fool's errand. Yeah, like I mean, it's like uh, you can't you can't argue with an idiot because you're never going to win. <laughs> yeah, and then you just get frustrated and annoy the idiot. Well, and that that's it, and then it becomes like a, a, a just a loop, a loop of of a ferociousness that you just don't need in your life. Do you like? Yeah. Um. What I was going to say, like, so we start every podcast with um, a demo. Um, and, you know, we've had Johnny Marr play a demo, um, and Eddie Smith's monitor mix demo. We've had some really special ones over, over the years. I think this is, like, right up there at the top for me as, a, as, as special demos on the, on the show goes. Because um, this, this is a demo of porcelain, and it sounds nothing like... The original which demos normally don't but like this in particular do you have any in, 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 uh, parts of wisdom you want to share on it before before i stick it on uh hmm i mean that was a pretty good description because and i guess the only thing and at the risk of being really self-involved in discussing you know nuances of my musical background that probably no one is all that interested in. I actually grew up playing guitar and playing in punk rock bands and which made it always seem kind of funny when people would refer to me as a DJ. Yeah, because you know, I know how to, I can DJing's fun. I know how to do it, but it, you know, and this is the very sort of like self-involved middle-aged musician part of me where it's, the number of times I've played a concert, you know, where I'm playing guitar, et cetera. And afterwards, someone comes up to me and says, oh, I didn't know you played guitar. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm an old person. I've been playing guitar. At this point now, I've been playing guitar for 46 years. Mm -hmm. And so most songs start off with just guitar. And, but then as the song 
evolves, the guitar sort of gets taken behind the woodshed and put out of its misery. Well, that that definitely has happened on this. Like, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna um, keep people waiting for it anymore. Here, there's a, a demo of porcelain. <clears throat> That was a demo of porcelain. Like we can all agree that like it, it's so so much more difficult or different, sorry, than um than the original. Do you, do you remember the the creative moment of of that, that nugget coming out? Yeah, I remember. I mean, even relatively specifically. So I was living on Mott Street in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and it would have been probably 1998, and at this point, just to provide a little bit of sad context, um, my career as a musician was basically done. You know, the album I had put out in, um, I think, 96 was called Animal Rights, and it was this really dark, very aggressive, almost punk rock industrial album, and it failed 
phenomenally. Like it just, you know, it sold nothing. And I went on tour to support it and I was opening up for Soundgarden and their audience was booing me off stage when they had, when they could even make the energy or have find energy to boo me off stage. <laughs> and then I did my own sort of noisy punk rock tour in 1997. And I'm not kidding. On average, we were playing to about 50 people a night. Um, oh, I'm, there's, because that's oh, there's one particularly sad show in Paris. We played, it was a, um, a legendary punk rock club. I think it was called the Arapaho. And we sold about 70 tickets. And by the end of the show, I think there were 20 people in the audience. So this is the context leading into the late 90s when I was writing the music that eventually became the album Play. And so I just thought, okay, I'd been dropped by my, I had two record labels, Mute and Electra, and Electra had dropped me. And Daniel Miller, I think, because he felt sorry for me, didn't drop me. And so I was writing all this music that did end up becoming the album Play, assuming and I'm not just being self-deprecating or like overly maudlin. Like I assume if the album ever got released that no one would listen to it because, you know, this was the late nineties. This was the era of like gigantic, hugely produced records, like, you know, the Backstreet Boys and, you know, like even like the Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers were massive. And I was sort of, almost like an embarrassing footnote from the rave era. Because your, your track Go was the one that sort of kicked it all off and, and we'll, we'll get back to that. I mean, I revisited it there like an hour ago just before I came back on and it blew my tits off. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is such, a, such a great piece of music that I completely forgot about. Dude, I mean, when you look back at uh, the animal rights record and, and all of the sort of negativity um, that there was in terms of numbers like statistics and numbers and that they weren't doing well like do you have a positive relationship with that album or like is that caught up in the fact that it didn't do very well or and do you even like it oh i i love it um i mean self-involvedly with no objectivity i love it and i also do feel a tiny little bit of i don't know authentic and I hate to use this word, pride around the fact that I did what I thought musicians were supposed to do. You know, like when I was growing up, the musicians I loved and idolized didn't make career choices. You know, they made the records that they want to make, whether it was Lou Reed making metal machine music or, you know, John Lennon starting the Plastic Ono Band or, you know, The Clash experimenting with reggae and all sorts of different things. Like I thought this is what musicians, this was part of the job description for musicians is you sort of built into your creative DNA, the right and the inclination to do things that were potentially 180 degrees away from what would sustain your career. And so when I made Animal Rights, that was the record I wanted to make and I, I guess my biggest disappointment was like, I could understand people not liking it, but I was a little bit taken aback that as far as I could tell, no one sort of like patted me on the shoulder and said, you know what? We don't like this record, but good on you for trying. And 
Yeah. It sounds like that you had kind of jumped into the sort of artistry of, of switching sound from, you know, like from, you know, like maybe like Ziggy Star, Ziggy Star, Dustin and Bowie beforehand and stuff like that. It sounds like you pulled the trigger too early before you had like had earned the right with the fan base to be able to like jump between records, maybe. Yeah, I mean, definitely from a professional perspective. And then I also had realized like the sort of genre jumping musicians I revered, you know, the people who were experimenting, you know, really that ethos seemed to have gone out the window by about 1980, Mm. you know, and then, and I realized like, oh, I'm just like, basing my understanding of the music world on musicians who haven't really been that active or in some cases were dead, you know, for decades. And, you know, I don't want, I'm not, I'm not complaining and I'm not, I don't have resentment around it, but I, I guess in my foolishness, I didn't realize that in the eighties and into the nineties and even now, you know, a lot of musicians, their main goal was to sustain their career. Mm-hmm. which is fine. I don't, but I just didn't know that was part of dedicating your life to being a musician. I thought, you know, like being idiosyncratic and odd and pursuing what you want to pursue. I thought that was part of the DNA of being a musician. Like one thing that has always been leveled against me in my, my, in my career, like on, on radio and stuff is like, nobody could ever pigeonhole what I was doing because I play a punk record and I play a techno record. I play some ambient stuff. I play some folk stuff, pop stuff, hyper pop, whatever the fuck. Like, um, and like I, you don't get booked for the gigs because nobody knows what you're going to turn up and play. And then you get booked yeah. for the gigs and you turn up and play and then you decide that you're going to play what you normally play and you play the wrong thing. It feels like the, like you, you might like have in a much bigger way than, than, than me, obviously, but like, uh, gone through a lot of that because you kind of tend to just reach for the record that you want to make at the time i i guess um yeah i mean i'm wary of giving myself credit because i think it was just sort of doing what came naturally which was you know i made in 1995 i made this album called everything is wrong and it had some techno anthems it also had some noisy punk rock songs and it had some pieces of very quiet classical music and some delicate ballads on it. And the weird thing is this all just made sense to me, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess to some extent I tried because I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you do something that just feels normal and other people challenge you and sort of let you know, sometimes pretty aggressively that what you're doing is not actually all that normal and it makes you wonder like okay so where where did I ever get the idea that this was normal and I think this eclecticism that we're talking about for me a lot of it came from living in and around New York in the 70s and the 80s because you know what you're describing like your approach to DJing that's kind of what existed in in the clubs in New York in the late seventies and the early eighties. Like you'd go go to Danceteria and the DJ would play a hip hop record followed by a punk rock record, followed by an Echo and the Bunnymen track, followed by a disco record. Like people almost prided themselves on eclecticism. And I feel like 
that gave me this very Pollyanna-ish idea that this was part of the ethos of music was the eclecticism you're talking about. And that seems to be like something that's more of a, of a New York scene than it is symptomatic of, of like the rest of the, the, the states or the world at that time. Because, I mean, do you, like New York has always prided itself on its hipster ability to be able to go, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? And, uh, and it got me thinking because, like, around that time, you have you have punk rock, which you're obviously, uh, you know, you're in punk rock bands, and you know, it's a it's a passion for you. But you're DJ and dance music and stuff as well. So I was thinking, like, where did you stand on the burning of the the disco records and the destruction of disco sucks when you kind of like have a foot in both a Doc Martin and a a platform? Well. I mean, I was a little too young at that point to have either Doc Martens or platforms. I basically just had the, the pair of sneakers that my mom bought in the basket at the grocery store. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. I don't know if you saw recently, there was a documentary about the Bee Gees. No, I haven't seen it. It's, it's okay. It's, ve- it's, a, it's a fairly straightforward, conventional documentary. Um, but the most interesting part is they talk about that. I think it was in Kaminsky Park in Chicago when they burned all the disco records. Mm-hmm. And they were interviewing a, a house DJ, I forget his name, who had been an usher at this event. And he basically said, and I, I hadn't really fully thought of this, how the disco sucks backlash. He's like, this was just straight up racism and homophobia. Yeah, You know, because disco was, you know, this black, gay, Latino, urban subculture that had somehow been embraced by the masses. And especially in the United States, I don't think this happened in the UK and the rest of the world, thankfully. But in the United States, there was this, like, white supremacist, homophobic, racist backlash against disco where they actually burned disco records and it's worth watching the Bee Gees documentary almost just for this section where this guy is talking about the records they were burning and he's like he's saying like he's like they were burning Marvin Gaye records they were burning Stevie Wonder records they were burning Bob Marley records aren't disco and even remotely the slightest like it was just racism and homophobia not that Marvin Gaye Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley were necessary, were gay, but like it was just this white backlash, which, and the the filmmaker Frank Marshall, who made the documentary, definitely made it pretty clear like this was indicative of what was coming with the Trump era and you know like the January sixth coup. It, I think I might have even watched it right after January sixth, and I thought like oh this has been happening for a really long time. You know, basically angry, white, racist, homophobic America, just so filled with rage and using any opportunity to, you know, to lash out at, you know, this changing world. But I feel like I'm unfortunately maybe getting on a tangent well, that I, is I, I different thought, from porcelain. Oh, no, I, I mean, I kind of like, like, I enjoyed the tangents of the podcast, like thing. It's, it's, it's more fun than radio, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I, I think that one of the things that struck me about, like, you know, apart from all of the ridiculous sadness and, and, and problems and 
and just like societal problems really that the the January sixth showed up on on the on the attempted coup was what a coup looks like from from a millennial's point of view where all of these people were going and destroying stuff and and like you know breaking and entering and stealing and stuff and then sitting there afterwards going but why are you arresting me <laughs> yeah which is like the most millennial thing ever like i've done something wrong but I've, i'm failing to like go uh like take any responsibility for it well i'd say it's it, it is a very modern approach both to like Doc your, document yourself committing a crime and document yourself celebrating the fact that you're committing a crime and then being upset when you're held to account for committing a crime. You know, it's, it's mind boggling. If it wasn't so tragic, it would be hilarious. And let's be honest, it is a little bit funny. Um, I mean, there's like lots of it that's not funny at all and not cool. Um, I do have to sort of prerequisite that, but just the fact that these people can't take responsibility for themselves. Um, I, I wanted to sort of like talk back a, like a little bit, just sort of like get in the time machine and go back a tiny, tiny little bit. Because I, I w- was wondering like what sort of like teenager were, were you? Like were you somebody that was like, into like fan bases like you know were you a fan of like uh, of music were you doing this sort of morrissey style thing where you were like writing letters to people or or were you just like into loads of different stuff i want to know what like teenage moby was like musically i was an i was a a sad uh insecure weirdo um i didn't but the thing is as we know in this culture, there are a lot of people who maybe self-identify as nerds who clearly are not. Mm. Um, I was, uh, you know, Star Trek obsessed, science fiction obsessed, reading tons of books, and just over the top obsessed with anything relating to new music. Like when I was around 13 years old, maybe 12 or 13, um, I finally admitted to myself that I liked punk rock and new wave. Mm-hmm. You know, this was 1977, 78. Cause up until that point, you know, I had been told by the cool kids at my school that we basically were not allowed to like punk rock and new wave. What were they listening to? They were listening and stuff that I actually really like now. They were listening to Led Zeppelin. They were listening to the kinks. They were listening to the who, which is all English phenomenal, speech. but at the yeah, but at the time, it was just understood, like, you couldn't listen to David Bowie, you couldn't listen to The Clash, you couldn't listen to Elvis Costello. And then I guess I had this moment of emancipation when I was around 13 or 14, and I finally realized, like, oh, you know, I have nothing against Led Zeppelin and The Who. In fact, I really like that, but I love The Clash, and I loved Public Image, and I loved, you know, Joy Division and Killing Joke. and and then I cut my hair short and worked up all my courage and went and I wore a talking head shirt to school. <laughs> and which might seem like the most innocuous sartorial choice you could possibly make. But this, it almost feels like an Ali G episode. It's like wearing a talking head shirt <laughs> to junior high school in Darien, Connecticut in the late seventies or early eighties. Like you took your life in your hands. <laughs> yeah i mean like i, I can understand Gro- growing up in a 
um, a very small regional town in Northern Ireland. Like I, I, my nose bends a couple of different ways from, from getting beat up for, for looking the way I did as a teenager. I mean, I'm just wearing a freaking hoodie and I'm in my thirties now. So like not, and nobody's going to beat me up about myself. Like, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I understand what that's like, but I, it, you know, you look back on it, like with, um, rose tinted glasses and part of it is part of the rebellion that you kind of enjoyed about it. And almost you kind of, I enjoyed in a strange, perverse way of getting shouted out the window, because at least I was getting noticed. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, at the time, you know, luckily I had three or four friends who also, you know, admitted that they liked punk rock and new wave. And then we started a little punk rock band. And on one hand, we felt, if I'm being honest, a little, a sense of sort of smug superiority, because we were you know, we had discovered something that was new and that was very challenging. And we were also spending as much time as we could going into New York City. And New York City in 19, and I feel like such an old person saying this, but like New York City in 1980, 81 was terrifying, but so exciting. So, and we were, you know, 14 years old, 15 years old, walking through essentially war zones to go to punk rock clubs and new wave clubs. And then we'd go back to our safe little suburb and feel this sense of like, I don't know, that, that's, that smug sense of like, while all these idiot kids that we went to school with, you know, were tucked in safe in their beds, we were at CBGB's at three o'clock in the morning listening to the Bad Brains. Yeah, but I, that, that's... I mean, that's what it should be like uh, at that age in New York, New York City. And it's like, I'm a, I love going to New York. I mean, I, there was a period I was going every year for about eight years. Um, it's just got this incredible energy to it that is as almost like for, for somebody coming in from Ireland, it's, it's so romantic and you're like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, the first time I ever landed in New York, I went straight to Times Square and got out of the subway and it was first with my suitcases and stuff this guy came mm-hmm. up he was like going hey guy you got a dollar and i was like well i actually haven't been to a bank machine or anything yet i'm gone and um he was like you got a dollar you got a dollar and he started following me and then i started picking up pace and he started running after me i was like flipping hell what a welcome to new york like <laughs> like around that time what were the punk bands called I, i'm always obsessed with what people's bands were called before they sort of oh the ones that the ones that i were in i was in yeah, yeah. Uh, the first, well, we had, the band itself didn't change, but our names changed every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And so our first band was called Brave Education. And then it was UXB, which stood for Unexploded Bomb. <laughs> and then we were the band, but spelled B-A-N-N-E-D, which we thought was obscenely clever. That's actually not bad. I don't mind that one. Like, out of the other two... I can ditch the other two, but that one's all right. Keep in mind, we were 14 years old, so yeah. we're, you know. And then uh, we loved the band uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Mm-hmm. And so my name is Richard Hall. So for a brief moment, we were Dickie Hell and the Red Beats, <laughs> which that one, that one only lasted about a day. And then finally, I guess junior year of high school we finally settled on the name the vatican commandos that's good that's pretty and the vatican commandos so we released a couple of seven inches we actually played shows for more than 10 people a night so we 
became reasonably well known in sort of the early eighties hardcore punk scene. There's a big there's a big Catholic imagery in there. Did you get like did any of the guys go to Catholic school or something like that? I feel like that's not something that you would just pick up out of the ether. No, we just thought it was funny. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was because, yeah, I imagine like a name like Vatican Commandos perhaps has a lot of resonance for someone coming from Ireland. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially going to Catholic school. Like. Yeah, for us, we just thought like we were like, OK, what what are two words that absolutely do not go together? And that's what we came up with. <laughs> They'd probably go to bat. They probably go better together than you might think, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, so. That was your first real taste of like people wanting to engage with the music that you were making instead of it just being like, you know, a, 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 a garage band um, sort of thing or just something to do with your friends. Did that imbue you to like want to take it further? Were you the sort of catalyst of making this into like a, a success or were you, did you have that sort of like DC hardcore punk kind of vibe where it's a cool? Well, I didn't know that success was an option you know the bands that i loved were never like were successful to me you know like i would go see you know echo and the bunny men play in new york and they would play for 500 people and to me that was rock stardom yeah you know i didn't know or you know like the first time i saw minor threat they played to about 250 people and i thought they were the biggest band in the world mm -hmm. so personally as a musician all i wanted to do was be a professional musician and have a life in music but i didn't even know that selling more than 500 copies of a seven inch was an option and i remember in the late 90s sorry late 80s i put out my first solo 12 inch single and it sold a thousand copies and honestly i had never expect i never even thought that was possible I was so amazed that there were a thousand pieces of vinyl in the world with my name on it. Did you sell them all? Uh, I'm sure we got some returns. Um, Do you still have it? But then I've got, yeah, I've got a couple of copies of it. You ever, you ever like check it out on Discog, see if it's going, how much it's going for? No, I, I try really hard to not, indulge my narcissism i mean it's not like you and, need money but it's interesting just to see how much other people are selling it for <laughs> but and the reason i don't is so i guess it was about maybe let's say 12 13 14 years ago i was utterly consumed with self-involvement and narcissism mm -hmm. and i would read every article written about me and every comment written about me and every review but unfortunately <laughs> and maybe this is still the case i don't know there was a time when the reviews and the articles and the comments were overwhelmingly negative and and sometimes phenomenally hostile and there was one comment i read might be this was 14 years ago 15 years ago on one of those, you know, like those sites, I don't think they still exist, like Gawker or Gothamist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So something had been written about me on Gawker and I read the first comment and the first comment basically was someone saying that they hated me so much that they wanted to stab me and watch me bleed to death in front of them in the sidewalk. Oh my 
God. And I just thought, okay. Uh, and I think around this time, I'd also read some terrible reviews of a record I'd made. And I just thought, you know what? I have three choices. One choice, find everybody who hates me and either <laughs> convince them to love me or kill them. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's not feasible. Option two is attain a state of inner peace and enlightenment where I won't be bothered by the fact that so many people hate me. Or option three, stop paying attention. And so yeah. option three is what I chose, which is so now I don't read reviews. I don't, if I'm on TV, I don't watch myself on TV. I don't Google myself, not because I'm not a narcissist, but because I'm so afraid of fueling the narcissism, both either in a positive or negative way. Well, I mean, I think that's the, the, the most sensible approach to anything like that. And I mean, you see it happen. Oh, I see it happen all the time because like I'm always involved with artists that are sort of on the on the come up. Maybe you see them at the, the very start and then you see them mm -hmm. in a year's time when they, their head is completely gone because they've had so many people blowing smoke up their ass for, for such a long time. And then, then you see the, the, the problems that come with, you know, reading the comments and, and, and things like that. I, I always wonder, have you ever bumped into anybody that's written those comments? And I, I don't mean just like, you know, um, uh, fans or punters, but, but but people who are paid to do do that, like journalists and stuff, have you ever had those like run-ins? Because I always think that those people tend to back down quite shockingly fast when when you meet them in real life. Um, yeah, and what I've found is, and and there are a few it's a few British journalists who have written really like phenomenally unpleasant things about me in the past. And the nature, as you know, the nature of making records, et cetera, putting them out, is you end up talking to the same people many times. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I just don't bring it up. Maybe I'm too much of a sissy, or maybe it's just my, you know, waspy Calvinist reserve. But like, if I'm talking to someone who I know dislikes me or has written terrible things about me in the past, I honestly, I just, ignore it like if they bring it up which sometimes they do i simply say like well it's your job like that this is the nature of you know this is the nature of releasing things into the public is like there are people who are going to actively criticize you for doing what you do that's why i got into playing records and, and talking about music and doing radio of music that i like because I started out as a journalist and I, I, I had quite a natural flair for slating things and I didn't like it. I didn't like reading it. I, I enjoyed writing it at the time, but it was like, you enjoy it. Like, I don't know. It's like a, like a, some sort of like sick joy. Like you're like enjoying like cheating on somebody or something like that. Like it's like this weird, dark joy. And then I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I just want to talk about stuff I like. So I was like, what do DJs do? That's what they do. I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no DJ becomes successful by playing records they hate. No, I mean, like the only person I could think of offhand. No, I can't really think of anybody. Maybe Howard Stern, just, just, just for a laugh. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's, that's all I could think of. Um, but you're right. That, I mean, that, that, and I would say this a much broad, much bigger conversation. That dark joy that you're referring to, I feel like is fueling so much just online commentary media etc and the only thing i can do because i know how easy it is to succumb to it 
you know, like when you read about someone who's being publicly crucified and you want, you know, like a part of you just wants to sort of like, you know, see them go down in flames. I'm like, oh, this is not a good part of anyone's psyche or personality. You know, that like that negative vindictive, even if the person's done terrible things, it's still, it's not, I, I think indulging that cult of judgment and vengeance, like it just doesn't, it, it doesn't lead to anything good. Well, I mean, like how did you deal with the, um, the stuff? Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. They came out with the the, the memoir that they came out last year with the Natalie Portman stuff because like there was an overwhelming like um, amount of like negative press around around that. Like how do you like how did you sort of resolve that? Uh, I guess because we're talking about it. Yeah, uh, I think, and luckily, I think this is one nice function of being an adult. And what I mean by that is, basically, as you get older, you have more of a basis of comparison, and your perspective is simply just, you know, hopefully. A bit broader mm -hmm. and you know I was referencing earlier when I like stopped reading comments and stopped reading reviews I sort of realized I had this epiphany that like sometimes we define mental illness as people who are responding to information that isn't actually there you know that might be overly broad and certainly not gonna stand up under clinical scrutiny but that's like when i see when i was living in new york and i would see someone walking down the street screaming at people who weren't there you would know like okay they are responding to information that isn't real mm -hmm. and so like in the you know the mid the early 2000s when i decided to no longer read comments no longer read articles about me etc I sort of had this very self-evident realization that my sense of self, ideally 
all of our sense of senses of self should be informed by what's in front of us, you know, meaning like your sense of self and well-being. And I don't want to sound too new agey, but because it's actually not, it's very straightforward. Like your sense of self and well-being should be informed by your friends, by yeah. the bed you sleep in, by your health, by, you know, stuff that is sort of tactile and real in front of you and not the opinions of complete strangers. And, and like so that's, that's sort of, I, so luckily I had already sort of cultivated that approach. So when I, because I've been attacked many, many times and I just have to remember like, you know, the things that give me meaning and well-being have nothing to do with the opinions of strangers. But like, is it? Do you think it's the, the attacks that, that you have had over over the years? Now, I, I do say that I said we will get back to the music, but it is interesting. Um, is it because that you have always had like a an alternative viewpoint, and a, and you know you've been coming at it from maybe a little bit differently than some of the people that are are writing? I mean, possibly, I, I, I don't think I have a whole ton of objectivity regarding that. Yeah. Um, because I've been attacked many, many times, and it, it used to really bother me. So like I said, I just had to, almost in the interest of self-preservation, realize that handing my well-being over to strangers I've never met or I'll never meet, and then now what makes it even more absurd and this happens to a lot of my friends, they'll be so upset at being attacked by, you know, online commenters and then find out the online commenter is a bot. Oh, really? Okay, right. So, like, I mean, like, how does that work? And, like, why would people program bots to do that? Like, obviously, not just talking about you, but your friends, and you don't have to say who they are, but, like, explain that to me a little bit because I, I don't know understand well, this at all. I, I mean, I think and this is just my understanding is there's the world of like bots and then troll farms. I've heard of this. And yeah. So like if you go online and look at a whole bunch of comments, it's safe to say a significant percentage of those comments are from bots, which is, you know, just like AI generated content um, either to suppress or promote, the content or it's a bunch of people in a cube farm in Macedonia who are paid by the hour to go online and either support or attack people. And it's usually supporting right-wing people and attacking progressives. What a, what a job that must be to like kiss your wife goodbye or your husband goodbye at the, uh, in the morning going off to the troll farm. I'll see you. I'll see yeah. you next. Yeah, so I, so I mean, so basically, and again, it's very self-evident, like handing my well-being over to the opinions of strangers is nonsensical, but handing my well-being over to the opinions of people who are paid to write opinions or people who are not actually human, like it's absurd to a level that I can't even process. I mean, like in, in the context of, you know, um, bots and, and supporting right wing um, politics, I feel like, the, you know, the, 
the the CIA approaching you in 2018 um, to to spread content on Trump and Russia and stuff like that kind of falls vaguely within that 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 realm. Well, that about that that I, I'll say that 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 was a bit weird and different because basically years of touring, I just ended up with some friends around the world who work at different intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened was when Trump was inaugurated, some of my friends who don't work in intelligence anymore, but are still connected to that world were genuinely, genuinely concerned that Trump was going to try and start a war with Iran or less likely, but also possible North Korea. And they said, because you have a pretty big, to me, they said, you have a pretty big social media following. Can you help get the word out that Trump is trying to do this? Because he desperately wanted to be a wartime president because he knew that being a wartime president meant he would get reelected. Yeah. And so, so it was really, it was more trying to draw attention to something that a couple of my friends didn't think was getting enough attention. Okay. I mean, when, see, I, like, I, I'm a typical headline reader and I'm just like, I'm painting my own sort of like weird uh, skullduggery joining the dots in my own head. When it, like, actually the reality of it is, it is, it is a, it's a bit more, um, it's, be, it's a, like a little bit more politically pedestrian than I had pictured in my head. Oh yeah, it's basically saying, yeah, it, it, it's both pedestrian, but you know, there was that genuine concern based on what Trump was doing. He was specifically moving well, it was aircraft true. carriers. It was, you know, it was moving aircraft carriers off the coast of Iran. And my friends who had been in intelligence said, the only reason you do that is to get ready to go to war. I, I wanted to jump into like the, the, the modern, like, uh, records that you've been putting out because like you like you've been more prolific since 2016 I, I count seven projects since 2016 um than any other time before what's like do you feel like this this is a particular purple patch or how do, how do you look at it i so one of the other very self-evident realizations i had and I've talked about it before, so I apologize if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but it was about 12 years ago, I went to go see David Lynch talk at BAFTA. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about creativity and he said, and I remember the quote, he simply said, creativity is beautiful. Because that's the way David talks. And something about the simplicity of that really struck me. And I realized, oh, like, if you sell records, that's fine. If you get good reviews, sure, that's okay. If people come to your concert, that's fine. But those should not be the things that you, that you focus on if you don't have to or if you're not very good at it. And I realized what had attracted me to music from day one was simply, and this sounds very new agey, I hope it isn't, but like simply the phenomenal emotional magic of music. And so from that point on, I sort of decided like, okay, I'm going to make records. I'm going to make music. If people buy them, that's fine. If they don't buy them, that's fine. If they like them, if they don't like them, none of that is relevant. 
the only thing that really mattered to me is like, I love making music. I love making records. I love putting music out into the world with the understanding most people will never listen to it or pay attention to it and being perfectly okay with that and hoping that maybe, you know, if you release a record, maybe someone listens to it and it somehow resonates with them emotionally or you just throw stuff into the void and it disappears and that's okay too. Is it possible to come to that realization without having had a modicum of success? Because like, you know, obviously you've done like massive things in, in, in music um, in different genres and, and obviously David Lynch um, uh, uh, as well. Like, I, I agree with everything that you're saying, but I, I think I would struggle if I was making album after album and I'm on my like 12th album and I'm like in my 30s like I am now and nobody has paid attention. At, at, to some degree, I would probably be like, the, the lack of success may color the, the actual enjoyment of the creativity. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, my perspective is inherently suspect because I have had a degree of success. And so, but I guess all I can say is, you know, when I was 22 years old, I was living in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood working on music and I was pretty happy. I was making $2,000 a year and I didn't have a bathroom or running water, but I had free electricity and I was, I was pretty happy. Yeah. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like it's one of the reasons why I don't generally talk about criteria for success or socioeconomic variables regarding success, et cetera, because like my perspective is very suspect. But that, I mean, that, that's it. Like, I think that a lot of people chase the success thinking that success will make you happy or fame will make you happy or money will make you happy. And like, in, in your viewpoint, what is that? Because like, I know that you had like a, a difficult enough time of it. Like after you, you, your like first real mainstream, well, your first real mainstream success would have been in the, like with Go and stuff, but I mean like really with play and, and the period after that, what was that like in terms of fulfillment? It was, I mean, okay, so I'm going to, and I know I issue a lot of these sort of like preemptive caveats, but this <laughs> is, I have to issue a preemptive caveat that I'm going to, I'm going to answer the question as best I know how, okay. understanding it's maybe a little bit um, esoteric and, and earnest. And on. I fully understand, like, it's your podcast. If you want to edit this stuff out, by all means, like, just. It. So, okay, here goes. This is the, my perspective is the human condition is baffling. You know, I saw this documentary a few years ago about a watering hole in Africa during a drought. And in the watering hole were rhinos and hippos and alligators and around the watering hole were lions and hyenas and all sorts of terrifying creatures and hiding behind a bush were three little monkeys and these scared little monkeys with no ability to defend themselves had to run to the watering hole and scoop up some water 
keep in mind, the water that had been shitted and pissed in by all these other creatures. And I realized in an instant, like, oh, those are our ancestors. Like these scared little monkeys scooping up garbage water, hoping to not get eaten. And so I think this almost encoded in our DNA to be terrified. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping in mind, the universe is a big unknowable place. We're alive for a couple of decades and we die. Everything around us dies. Everyone around us dies. We have no idea what gives our lives meaning or significance or if our lives have any meaning or significance. And so we are programmed to want to hold on to anything that gives us sort of like the, the, the idea of meaning, significance, safety, and structure, mm-hmm. you know? And that's why I think fame, wealth, et cetera, are so profoundly seductive. Because when, you know, if you're famous and wealthy and the world is telling you that it loves you, in that moment, you feel like you've exempted yourself from the human condition. Like you've found meaning, you've found safety, you've found, you know, community. And that's, I think, why so many people hold on to it so desperately, even after, even while it's being, or after it's being taken away from them. So after play became successful, I thought I'd found the secret to everything. I thought I, which was basically, as long as I could stay drunk and high (laughs) and famous, everything would be perfectly fine. And I am hesitant to anthropomorphize the universe, but I feel like the universe, if it has any sort of awareness or consciousness, might have looked at me and said, you know, trying to stay famous, narcissistic, drunk, and high is not the best way to approach the rest of your life. Yeah, I mean, going back to like that that, that idea of saying drunk and high um, all the time, I mean, like, you know, there's a, there's a certain element of that that is like bred into young men from from and young women as well. I mean, from the the looking at people like Patty Smith and Lemmy from Motorhead, and you know, like all, all of these huge and um like pompous rock and roll cliches. Like, a, a, like it almost feels that you wouldn't have been doing your job right if you hadn't have like lent into that skid a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's just weird because when I was growing up, none of my musical heroes were big rock stars. You know, they, it was, you know, Ian MacKay from Minor Threat or Henry Rollins from Black Flag or Ian Curtis or, you know, um, Edwin Collins from Orange Juice. People who just like I thought were like kind of smart and relatively self-effacing. So when I became a completely self-involved alcoholic and addict, I actually felt like I was betraying my idea of what a respectable musician was supposed to be. Like The majority of those musicians that you talk about are um, straight edge, aren't they? Well, uh, Ian for sure is. Henry um, Ian definitely are. Yeah, Henry, I wonder, I mean, yeah, I don't know Henry that well. Um, I mean, he definitely, I know he comes from that world. I don't know if he would still self-identify. Yeah, I mean, straight I, mean, edge, I mean, sort of like, you know, at the time, 
like uh, like when you would have been listening to them they, they they definitely would have been so i don't know like i mean a lot of the things that like tend to sound like reactions you know like punk rock to to dance music from listening to sort of like you know there's like everything seems to be a reaction and a rebellion to what's gone before really hasn't it up to a certain point yeah i mean my when i really fell in love with alcohol and drugs i don't think it had much to do with rock stardom or living a larger than life existence i think simply i just loved and it's so reductionist but like i just loved the way they made me feel what what sort of drug you know, was it like that you were what, that you were enjoying? Everything. The only drug I did not enjoy, like the drug that I actively loathed, but I still did it because I would do anything that was put in front of me, was cannabis. And that's the weakest to, of all of them. I'm not saying that like you know there's particular like levels or whatever. Like, but you would like I mean like that's legal in a lot of the places in the states right now. Like, what was your yeah? And it, it, with it? Like, it just if, made me. F- it made me feel like grimy. Would you rather? Like it didn't. Would you rather smoke crack than marijuana? Oh, in a heartbeat. Yeah, no pun intended. That's 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 mad. That that blows my mind. Like even what? It, like, did did you smoke cigarettes as well? No, because my mom had been a smoker and she died of lung cancer. And yeah. okay, I just didn't like. I mean, to me, cigarettes just simply didn't make sense because they didn't. They didn't really. I was okay with negative consequences if the payoff was phenomenal, you know, like going on a, you know, a a speed bender or smoking cocaine or whatever, like that was fine. You know, running the risk of dying was okay because the high was so great. Running the risk of getting lung cancer and destroying your heart, et cetera, for five seconds of a nicotine high just seemed really illogical to me mm-hmm. yeah and and like when like how long did you sort of how long i mean like yeah how long do you have in that sort of sphere before you turn it around like how long was that <laughs> well the first time that i a- got <laughs> the first time i got drunk and high i was 10 years old oh, shit. and i had lots of periods of intermittent we'll call them like attempts at sobriety but i finally got sober when i was 43 so you know i had a good you know 33 year on again off again run with liquor and drugs oh i mean that's 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 a decent run that's a good innings i I would say on that like do you what are you like 12 years out now sober yeah the only thing i miss is actually not the liquor or drugs it's the it's the sort of the combination that you would have when you're like relatively young and it's 11 o'clock and you're out with your friends and you're on your third or fourth drink and you've had, you know, a couple of lines of cocaine and maybe two hits of ecstasy and you know, like, and the music is wonderful and you're flirting with someone. So it's more the, that moment is the only thing I miss, but I, I don't miss it in a way that would in any way make me want to go back to it because there's also the understanding that now I'm like 55 years old. If I was to try to go back to it, it would just be so sad. You know, the idea of being like the old grandpa with the gray beard 
in a hipster bar doing drugs with 24 year olds that would just be the, the tragedy of that is enough to keep me sober yeah i i, I think you you tend to like be somebody who prefers like spending time at home more than than anything else but i mean your 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 ideas of like what what uh, constitutes a good night out changes through each decade that you you go through does doesn't it like what 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 do you consider a good night out now Con- pretending that covid isn't actually real no that's not me saying COVID's not real but if covid wasn't happening <laughs> really yeah. have to set these things out pre-covid what was a good night out there's a better way in um uh, honestly a good night out now or pre-covid is staying in and working on music like it's you know i have some very simple selfish goals one of which is to never go on tour again as long as i live um <laughs> so and the other so the, and the other is to ever avoid, to see you live. what's that nobody's gonna get to see you live again ever oh, I, I play live but it's not on tour. La- i think the last live show i played I played some acoustic songs at a fundraiser for a friend of mine, the elementary school that a friend of mine's kids go to. Mm. Like, I love doing that. But the idea of being another middle-aged musician, traveling around the world, staying in hotel rooms, playing hits from 20, 30 years ago, like, I, I just, if I can avoid that, I'd really like to avoid that. And what was the other goal that you were saying before I cut you off? Oh, to not go to, 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 not go to parties. <laughs> that one's pretty easily avoid- avoidable although like i mean i don't understand um la that well because i've never been there which is a fair reason to not understand anything but um like if it's anything like uh curb your enthusiasm um it, it feels like you know uh larry david's always got like people coming over for for parties and they're having their dinners and they're having their nice little moments I, do you consider that a party or do you consider it like a proper like club like what is the party to you uh, anything that involves socializing with more than two people and I'm perfectly happy. I just, I don't know why. I think part of getting older is admitting to yourself the things that you've never really liked and finally accepting like, okay, I really genuinely don't like some, like I don't like touring. I you get, know? I mean, I like, I played music and have toured about and DJed about and toured about and I hate it. I really, I really don't. And I mean, like, even when I was like turning about DJ and when I was in my like, you know, mid twenties, I still hated it then. <laughs> like it, it was fun doing it and it was fun for the couple of hours afterwards, but everything else was, was borderline hell. Yeah. It's yeah. So, I mean, unless you're in love with living on the road or like in my case for many years, like I was in love with, you know, getting drunk and high after the show, like, then it was fine. But like, if you, I don't know, I just, the the thought of being that guy, you know, who like into his 50s, 60s, 70s, just keeps going out there, you know, and then starts doing photo shoots where like you hire a stylist to make you look reasonably young and attractive, like, I just would rather, if I can avoid those pitfalls, I'd, I'd like to. Did you ever cross paths with um, Andy Warhol back in New York? Like you would have been 
like we kind of like sort of sort of around there like he would be not in its heyday anymore of like you know actually you tell me when you met him like you know better than i do well i didn't i didn't meet him but there was a club called area Mm. Uh, it was in tribeca and it was i guess what this would have been like 80 1983 maybe 84 and it was the coolest club i'd ever been to and i think it was maybe the second time i went there he was there i think he was in my mind he was there with jean-michel basquiat maybe he wasn't but i just remember seeing him from afar and that was enough for me i was just like i can't believe i i'm in the same space as andy warhol i mean at, at that point I didn't even really know that much about his philosophy or his life's work or whatever. I just knew that like there was Andy Warhol and I was at that point, what, like a, you know, 18, 19 year old kid from the suburbs. And I just, it just amazed me that it was even, there was a world where it was possible for me to be in the same general space as someone like Andy Warhol. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, and that, that, that sort of does open your eyes up and, I almost like kind of takes the mystery out of it a little bit. Part of part of you is like going, "Wow, this is incredible," and the other part of you is like, when you realize that like the people that you look up to fart, and burp, and and struggle to get out of bed some mornings, and like stub their toe, like the the moment that you make the celebrity human, it's almost like a little bit of a disappointment or something. Like I I think like when you're when you're quite young anyway. Well, that's. Yeah, that realization that no human being is simply not human. You know, that everybody, you know, deals with the same human pitfalls. And obviously there are socioeconomic aspects to it as well. But like, because maybe you had this same experience. When I was growing up, I assumed that the David Bowies of the world, you know, the 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 David Lynch's of the world, you know, these huge, yeah, <laughs> these huge iconic, oh, for the podcast, you were just holding up a mug with uh, Ziggy Stardust picture on it. Um, so, um, yeah, I just worked under the assumption that like these phenomenal people lived truly phenomenal lives and they only had interesting conversations and they only had interesting thoughts. And some of them, are wonderful people, but like no one, no one is exempt from the actual act of being human. And sometimes that's disappointing. And as a result, I've made an effort to not meet some of my heroes because I am much happier, like just, you know, listening to their records as opposed <laughs> to getting a handshake and a photograph. Is it, yeah. But I mean like that, I, I also like you know as disappointing as it can be it also makes you feel like you can achieve more with your life almost um by a deed pull because these people are so so normal like the idea of lou reed um contemplating the idea of just paying a tax bill or or, or like you know having to sort out the heating <laughs> or whatever i don't know just like makes me think going oh, that's all right i'm 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 fine with that who who was your heroes that you haven't met uh, well, I was at a party at an art gallery a few years ago, and Neil Young was there. And someone asked me if I wanted to meet Neil Young. And of course, I'm sure he's a wonderful person. I'm sure he's 
would have been gracious and kind, but I thought to myself, okay, if there's even a 1% chance that he's going to be a dick, <laughs> I would rather just keep his songs to myself and not meet him as opposed to run the risk of him being a dick and I lose those songs. Because it's really hard to listen to After the Gold Rush or Helpless if you've had a bad experience with the guy who wrote it, which most likely I would not have, but I was just not willing to risk it. There, there was somebody that put up on, um, it was a, a meme that I saw the other day. There's like a, a fan group for one of the, the shows that I do. I do like an ambient kind of show on Spotify. And there's, it's called Chill the Beats. And um, there's like a, a meme page that people just put up funny music memes. And there was one that came up and it was just like Neil Young, the you know social warrior, man of the people, all the rest of it. And then it has a quote to, to um, lyrics from a song of After the Gold Rush. And I can't remember which one it is. And it just says, I'm going to go and I'm going to get myself a maid and she can fix my mails or whatever. And it's like mm-hmm. completely against everything that Neil Young is in your, in your head. Have you ever heard the story? Now, I want this to be true. And I hope to God it is true that um, he was mixing an album in his house. He's got a massive house and he would go out onto the boat on the lake that was facing his house and he would have a stack of speakers in his in the house pointing out of the window down towards the lake and he would have another stack almost panning left and right um, in his barn and they would both be blasting the music out as he would sit in his boat in the lake and he would shout more barn you check more barn <laughs> and turn turn um, that up. I hope that's true. I've never heard that story, but I'm of the opinion that just generally speaking, it makes sense to give credence to a good story, even if it's not true. Like like the moment someone like if you have an amazing story and someone says, Oh, but that's not true, I'm like, yeah, but who cares like the universe is 14 billion years old we know nothing and so if you have a wonderful story about lou reed yelling more barn the criteria for assessing the story should not be whether it's true but is it a great is it great but that's and it by de- but it's a great story so i wholeheartedly can happily say that that is a true story simply because it's great yeah they, they like don't let the was it don't let the truth get in the way of a, of a good story um what's the best fake story that you've heard about you or that's been leveled at you that's just completely not true best fake story and now that we've set it up with more barn i just can't think of anything (laughs) as good as because most of the fake stories have been pretty just sort of sad and mundane like you know someone i went to high school with saying that they taught me how to play guitar and i'm like well no that's it's not true. It's not exciting. It's not bad. It's just kind of sad. So, you know, and here's what's even worse is we've just established that the criteria for evaluating a story should have nothing to do with whether it's true. <laughs> and I can't even think of a made up fake story. Like I should be, I should say something like, well, you know, like there was that time when I was mixing a record on the space shuttle and I yelled like more port or more starboard, which is, you know, old nautical terms applied to, you know, of course, because you've been on the space shuttle. So that would, 
<laughs> I can't even think of a good fake story. So I'm sorry. And see, like, the, the, this is where other podcasts would just clickbait and just use that as, like, going, the crazy story that uh, Moby talks about making mm-hmm. an album on the space station mirror. <laughs> um, listen, um, I just very briefly, uh, b- before we go, like, I mean, I had this, like, all these questions about the new record um, and stuff, like, but we, we haven't got around to it yet. Um, can, you, can you tell me a little bit about the, 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 the album that's coming out, coming out this year? How do we listen? Yeah, so it's called it's called Reprise, and what happened was I went to go see Brian Ferry at the Hollywood Bowl a few years ago, and he was performing with an orchestra, and it was amazing because I love Roxy Music and Brian Ferry. And then afterwards, I was talking to the woman who had booked the show, and she asked me if I would ever like to play with an orchestra, and I of course said yes, but it didn't seem like it was in the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. So turns out it was, and I did a show here in Los Angeles with the LA Philharmonic and self-involvedly, it was, it was really special, you know, like performing with a 120 person orchestra and a gospel choir. And, you know, it was just, it was a wonderful night. And after that, um, this woman, Hannah, from Deutsche Grammophon, came up to me and asked me if I'd ever like to make the album version of that, which is essentially an orchestral greatest hits record. And when I was growing up, you know, my mom was a pianist. I grew up around a lot of classical music, and I have always loved not so much even or giant bombastic orchestral music, but classical music in general. And so what I really liked was the idea of making a modern record in the least modern possible way. So, you know, on this album, it's, you know, versions of a bunch of my older songs and there are a bunch of guest vocalists. You know, Chris Christofferson sings a song, Jim James from My Morning Jacket, um, Gregory Porter. And there's almost no electronics. It's, you know, drums, percussion, orchestra, string quartet, brass sections, piano, guitar, but I, and we made most of it, we recorded in two places, and it sounds like such an old school way of making a record, because it is. Um, We recorded here in LA at this studio called East West Studios, which is where Brian Wilson made Pet Sounds. Um, The Mamas and the Papas recorded all of their records there. And then we also recorded the orchestra, in Hungary. And again, I'm biased. I think the record got some really special moments. And I just loved that I was given this weird opportunity to make a record in such a, for me, such an unconventional way. Mm-hmm. And, and when, like, does it cover, like, it, it, does it cover every single part of your career? Or does it, does it cover most? Or is it like a proper greatest hits where you're taking a little bit of each album? Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, you know, an orchestral version of Natural Blues with a gospel choir and Gregory Porter and this wonderful singer named Amethyst Kia. Um, we actually, the, the most challenging one was actually doing an orchestral version of Go. Um, and, but somehow. What, what's doing that? Somehow it, what are you, what are you using for that big driving dance beat or have you sort of changed it around? A drummer. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, 
and then <laughs> and then the percussion and then i played the percussion with this wonderful old percussionist old meaning just he's been around for quite a while by name alex acuna yeah and then so that was the go was the biggest challenge because there are no real words to the song like all the other songs on the record um are very vocal driven with the orchestra with the orchestra and string quartet playing um the one that is probably nearest and dearest to my heart is we did a i did a version of heroes you know the david bowie song mm -hmm. and the version on reprise is basically my homage to the time i got to spend with david bowie before he died and wow. we had this one phenomenal morning he came over to my apartment on mott street because we were neighbors mm -hmm. And we played Heroes on acoustic guitar together, just the two of us sitting on my sofa Saturday morning drinking coffee. And so this version on the album is sort of very much like inspired by that experience. Like it's a, it's a very different version of Heroes. It's very quiet, very pretty. It's sung by my friend Mindy, who has a beautiful female voice. Incredible. Like, I mean, there's, there's, it sounds like so much, um... And I enjoy this more than I than a standard greatest hits album because I just don't I just can't give a shit about greatest hits albums unless they're like from bands that have loaded catalogs. Like I I mean, well I don't want to I don't want to say it in case I ever get them on as a guest. But there's some bands and some albums that I'm just like they tend to do the same song over and over and over again. And like the greatest hits is actually pretty good for that. So like I the formula of greatest hits doesn't appeal to me, but the formula of this does because it's it's fresh and it's new and it's a, a a good way of a good way of sort of bringing that sort of like new like re like new versions of moby tracks to like 2021 yeah i mean i guess the irony there is as i said to make a modern record in the least possible modern way yeah yeah you know there's i mean there's nothing the only thing electronic was the devices used to record the record. So it's all, you know, it's, and I, I hope that comes through. Um, you know, I, because I really love, you know, talking about Neil Young, talking about, you know, like classical music, orchestral records, how they're, you hear the space in which it's being made. Like you hear the, the subtlety and the nuance and the vulnerability. And that's what, so I, there are moments of bombast on this record, but hopefully juxtaposed with moments of like real, like, you know, quiet vulnerability. Well, listen, I can't, I, I have, like I was gonna say, I can't wait to get my teeth stuck into it. I kind of have already. I've had a sneak listen and it's, it's, it's really, really good. So, um, I mean, that's, oh, thanks. that's a, that's a treat for, for Moby fans um, out there. Listen, man, th th I've, I've taken up enough of your time um, today. Um, thank you so much for um, coming on the show and thank you for, for, having a, a good chat with me today oh my pleasure and i hope that your dog doesn't destroy anything <laughs> for the or i was gonna say for the remainder of the pandemic but just generally speaking <laughs> fingers crossed your dog doesn't destroy anything that you actually really care about the, my dog has been more restorative to my mental health that it can destroy all it fucking wants in, in terms of physical possessions yeah. i don't give a shit it's not, it, it doesn't even match up <laughs>